Welcome to the February 2019 podcast for the Journal of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition. My name is Kelly Tappenden, Professor and Head of Kinesiology and Nutrition at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition. I'm pleased today to invite my guest, Dr. Leah Gramlich, who is of the Department of Medicine Division of Gastroenterology at the University of Alberta Hospital in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. She is going to walk us through her paper called The Implementation of an Enhanced Recovery After Surgery Program Can Change Nutrition Care Practice, a Multicenter Experience in Elective Colorectal Surgery. Welcome, Dr. Gramlich. Thanks, Kelly. It's nice to be here. Gone are the days when one would fast for surgery, have the surgery, and then have a long fasting period afterwards with the slow implementation of, of diet, starting with clear liquids uh, and, and slowly moving up, or perhaps should be gone with the days, right? That's still very common in some places, though there are now new guidelines encouraging a very different approach to surgery. And, and your program or your paper focuses on that. Can you tell us a bit about those those trends and, and changes? Sure. In the early uh, 1990s to 2000 in uh, Europe, um, uh, there was a group of clinicians uh, that included Ollie Lundquist and Ken Fearon uh, and Danish surgeons, uh, Heinrich Kellett, who was a, a leader in this work, who really looked at the surgical patient and said, can we improve care? And Heinrich Kellett in particular identified that prolonged fasting, immobilization, excess use of fluids, and excess use of opioids were problematic. From that observation and early implementation of strategies to address underfeeding and starvation, immobilization, prolonged opioid use, and excessive IV fluid use, came the first enhanced recovery programs that were also termed fast-track programs. They showed a major reduction in length of stay and improvement in patient outcomes, such as reduction in complications. Fast forward to about 2005, the enhanced recovery after surgery programs got together and published the first guideline for enhanced recovery after surgery and colorectal surgery. And in that, they described an enhanced recovery after surgery program. It's got three components. There's an evidence-based guideline for care that includes preoperative care, things such as um, appropriate patient education, nutrition risk screening, patient optimization, use of carbohydrate loading, and restricting fasting so that uh, adoption of um, fasting guidelines suggesting that patients could eat liquids up to two hours before surgery and a light meal up to six hours before surgery, and this is an evidence-based practice, would be put into play. Interoperative care practices in the ARAS protocol or evidence-based guidelines related to the use of nausea vomiting prophylaxis, the use of short-acting anesthetic agents and uh, appropriate anesthesia, the avoidance of salt and water overload, so uh, IVs weren't left run wide open during surgery, and maintenance of normal thermia. In the post-operative space, in this colorectal cohort and guideline, care elements included appropriate analgesia, avoidance of tubes, prophylactic prevention of nausea vomiting, 
early removals of catheters, and starting oral nutrition in colorectal surgery, sometimes in the recovery room, but certainly uh, post-op day one, early mobilization and stimulation of gut motility. So there's an evidence-based guideline. Other components of ERIS are the use of audit to tell health professional care teams where their practices can be improved and the use of a change management approach, bringing teams together, leading surgeon, leading anesthesiologist uh, around patient care using data from the audit that relates to the guideline to document best care. The application of these ERAS programs uh, initially in a colorectal cohort is now broadened. In 2019, there are uh, many guidelines coming, but current guidelines exist for gynecologic oncology, uh, hepatectomy, cystectomy, pancreatectomy, breast reconstruction, cystectomy. Uh, recently, we've created a guideline for cesarean section. So you can imagine a guideline matches the audit system and the implementation program for change management helps teams use the audit to change practice because practice changes hard. We got into this game in Alberta Health Services in Edmonton and Calgary in 2013 as we initiated a program level change through strategic clinical networks. And I was a leader in this work because I recognized that nutrition care elements in ERA were really profiled. They included uh, absolutely the fact that everyone gets nutrition risk screening, that's part of the protocol, that carb loading is used um, as a metabolic modifier, so patients get a carb load before surgery. We avoid prolonged fasting, as you've indicated, before surgery. If a patient is defined at nutrition risk, specific interventions are undertaken. Care in the intraoperative space that might impact how patients can eat post-op might include appropriate analgesia, nausea, vomiting, prophylaxis, and uh, uh, appropriate use of IV fluids such that patients weren't uh, being overhydrated or drowned uh, intraoperatively. And that impacts post-operative uh, feeding uh, and nutrition care practices that we looked at in this study. The specific nutrition care elements that we audit include nutrition risk screening, the use of carb and fluid loading, the use of uh, modern fasting guidelines so patients aren't, don't undergo prolonged fasting. Um, more controversial now is the lack of use of a bowel prep, uh, which was evidence-based and it prevents dehydration, use of nausea, vomiting, prophylaxis and then stimulation of gut motility, and we measure early oral nutrition, which post-op day zero, when the patient's in recovery, success is getting more than 300 calories of an oral nutrition supplement a day. Post-op day two, you need to get uh, more than 600 calories a day of oral nutrition supplement to be compliant, uh, and uh, use of oral nutrition supplements in rapid transition to diet is also measured. So those are some of the key care elements of the ERAS program. We've expanded ERAS in Alberta from colorectal, and that is the focus of this paper, to include all surgeries where ERAS protocols exist. So to date, uh, there is in development an ERAS protocol for cardiothoracic surgery, which represents about a third of overall surgeries. Orthopedics represents about a third of overall surgeries. And so there are big areas where enhanced recovery programs are being developed with a guideline and an audit system to measure compliance to the guideline. Kelly, we know 
that the more compliant you are to the evidence-based guidelines, the greater the impact it has on outcomes. The outcomes of relevance that we're measuring include uh, acute length of stay, total length of stay, so that includes readmission, readmission rates, and complications according to the Clavian-Dindo classification. Although not classically measured as outcomes in this paper, we describe nutrition care as an outcome of relevance. And with this implementation, it's very evident that we can impact nutrition care with enhanced recovery after surgery. Things such as prevalence of screening uh, and timing to oral intakes. So just to make sure everyone is on the same page, you were taking this province, hospitals within the province of Alberta, and looking at a prospective implementation of ARS programs in colorectal surgery and then measuring compliance to this new protocol, correct? Correct. Tell us about how you did this then. It was 2013 to 2017 wherein your data were collected? Yes. Yeah. This is and interesting, Kelly. This is where I'm working on, and it's, uh, it's a science in pillar three. This is not discovery science. What new molecule or nutrition regimen is going to impact uh, care or influence a biologic outcome? It's not a clinical trial. This is implementation science, which aims to have a health system impact. So we began with that end in mind. We used a query approach or a quality improvement to research initiative approach where we started the implementation in two early adopter sites. So we had sites in Edmonton and Calgary. And I'll just uh, let the audience know that in Alberta Health Services, Alberta is uh, one province in Western Canada with a population of about 4 million that has one publicly funded healthcare system. Unfortunately, in Alberta, we spend more per capita on health than any other province, and our healthcare system was in interested in undertaking transformational strategies that would allow us to not only improve care, but impact cost and quality of care, such as readmissions. That was our overarching goal. We started with two early adopter sites, and at those sites, we uh, identified teams who said, let's look at 50 baseline patients before we've done ERAS. And so they measured compliance to all the care elements in the baseline of 50 patients. Then we had an implementation program. We taught the sites how to use the interactive audit system so they could audit their compliance to care. We brought teams together and used a a technique called learning collaborative so they could share their learnings and we assessed barriers and enablers to care so that we could understand what strategies to adopt to allow us to make this easier to push out to our next four sites. So then we uh, included six further sites. Uh, our part, uh, to date we've done ARS colorectal in nine sites but the data from this re represents implementation of ARS colorectal in six major sites in Alberta that do uh, over 75% of the colorectal surgery. We're doing about 4,000 colorectal surgeries in Alberta a year, so we do a lot of colorectal surgery, and the Surgery Strategic Clinical Network had this on their site. So we started with two, we measured impact on outcome, we spread to four further sites, 
Uh, to date, we now are in nine sites in 12 program areas with about 18 teams. So we're pushing ARIS out beyond this colorectal paper. Very good. And in this paper, you measured compliance to nutrition care elements uh, in particular, right? Correct. So nutrition care elements, which seem intuitive to me, nutrition risk screening. In Alberta Health Services, we have one provincial nutrition and food service, and our strategic priority has been to uh, enhance malnutrition care, so to prevent, detect, treat malnutrition. That's why we were particularly interested in ARAS. So we uh, like the fact that nutrition risk screening has to be done. To be compliant, you have to screen for nutrition risk. You have to use a validated screening tool. We used either the MST or the Canadian Nutrition Screening Tool. For those who might not be aware, nutrition risk screening with the Canadian Nutrition Screening Tool asks two questions. Have you lost weight without trying? Uh, and have you been eating less than usual over the preceding two, uh, two weeks? If you answer yes to both of those questions, you screen positive. Other nutrition care elements that we audit compliance to are the use of fluid and carbohydrate use uh, loading. So uh, patients with a, are given a pre-op carb loading drink with at least 50 grams of carbohydrate uh, up to two hours before anesthesia. No prolonged fasting, we thought was a nutrition care element, regardless of what time of day your surgery is. Not having a bowel prep was compliant. If the patient got intraoperative nausea and vomiting prophylaxis before the end of the operation, that was termed compliant. The use of uh, gut motility agents like milk of magnesia used uh, to stimulate gut motility was termed compliant. We measure early oral nutrition based on oral nutrition supplement consumption, and we also measured mobilization. Ollie Lundquist, who's really a founder of Eris, was in Edmonton last week um, uh, for a visit, and he said, Leah and Lisa, why didn't you measure uh, intraoperative uh, volume and uh, opioid use uh, as a marker of uh, nutrition care? Because those are modifying metabolism. In fact, Lisa Martin, who was our PhD student, did that analysis and there was no relationship. But we could consider other intraoperative care elements that might have impacted this. Very so we measured compliance. Yeah. Yes. And what did you find then? How, how easy is it to implement a protocol like this? Uh, you know, we were very impressed. We had a system that pulled up its sleeves and we developed an integrated KET approach where we recognized that uh, learnings at the patient level, how can the patient support this? How do we uh, inform them? How do we get their buy-in? How do we follow them along their journey was really important. How do we look at barriers and enablers? We looked at the health system, doctors, nurses, physiotherapists, dietitians, what are the barriers and enablers that you've had in implementing this? And we looked at the health system to understand how we could remove barriers because we recognize that we want enhanced recovery for all patients in Alberta Health Services. So we built upon that knowledge translation framework and I, I think that's contributed to our success. So we started with success in colorectal and uh, specifically as it relates to nutrition risk screening, we, before we implemented ARIS colorectal, we were doing nutrition risk screening in only 9% of our patients as measured at baseline. Post ARIS implementation, our nutrition risk screening increased to 74%. 
So we thought that was really impressive and impactful. Nutrition Service was very pleased with that. We recognize that we're still not screening or missing data in about 25%, so we have a way to go. We improved compliance for pre-op carb loading. Before surgery, compliance was less than 5%, it was 4%, and following implementation of, of ARS colorectal, our compliance with carb loading went up as high as 61%. Uh, time to uh, early oral nutrition consumption intake. Compliance says you need to be drinking more than 300 calories post-op day zero. Our compliance was only uh, in the 20s, 20%, but that meant that we were feeding people post-op day zero with oral nutrition supplements and post-op day one and two. Time to tolerating uh, solid food went from 5.9 days before we implemented ARS to 2.3 days after ARS implementation. So think about how your surgeons are practicing. The patient has to poop and they have to eat before they can be discharged. So patients and our measurement of time to tolerating solid food was based on is the patient completing more than 50% of their trade. So we impacted, in, this is in a, a 4,000 colorectal patient. So we've changed the culture. The expectation now is that patients should eat after surgery, post-op day zero. We want them, even if they've had a big abdominal surgery, to be eating. And in fact, it was kind of surprising because patients didn't know what to expect. They said, gee, what, my doctor wants me to eat? I've had big bowel surgery. And sometimes the patients, uh, their lack of knowledge and understanding was a barrier. So we had to address that as well. Very successful implementation. Uh, for other institutions that are trying to implement an ARIS program such as this, uh, what were the biggest barriers that you identified? I understand that there's barriers that were assessed amongst various populations involved with the program, but you know, what are the big ones that other groups should anticipate? Well, it's interesting that you asked that because we actually looked at this with the knowledge translation lens. We've been doing KT research and so we use the query framework, and they've got a model that looks at strategies to spread and scale. There's an excellent article by Cheryl Stetler from 2008 that we used to inform it. And in fact, you'd think, gee, there's lots of clinical care happening, and we're really trying to change clinical care. So as we looked at um, barriers and enablers throughout this whole implementation, and it was published in Implementation Science in 2017, the clinical uh, no signal of barriers and enablers related to only about 25%. Clinical care elements account for only about a quarter of the barriers and enablers, and they localized into five domains of clinical care. Nutrition, mobilization, hydration, pain and symptom control, and kind of best operative practices like uh, thromboprophylaxis, antibiotic prophylaxis. In the nutrition uh, area, we did sub-theme analysis and barriers related to, gee, how do we refrigerate our oral nutrition supplements? How can we improve palatability? What supplement do we use? We found that using MedPass or uh, using the medication admission rec record to give 60 mils of product QID was a very effective way to make sure that patients were getting oral nutrition supplements. So we sub-themed these. So clinical care elements only accounted for a quarter of the barriers and enablers. Creating capacity in the system through order sets and tools like around-the-clock anti-emetic therapy or standard non-opioid analgesia approaches, um, 
and tools, education for patients and providers. We had a lot of old school nurses who said, you know, patients should be lying down. We should keep your Foley catheter in. We can't be feeding you. So this is really challenging a lot of hardwired practices. So we did a ton of education. We had symposia. We brought groups together to do joint learning. Uh, creating um, data management strategies because the data to get this data, it's not intuitive. We're working towards getting EPIC across our system. I know the Mayo Clinic has recently launched that. So the data was hard to find and we create, we're creating capacity with our new provincial electronic medical record to do this. You need to have some resources, effective data, and we have ARAS nurse coordinators who are invaluable to this implementation. So clinical elements accounted for about 25% of the barriers and enablers, uh, creating capacity through system-wide activities like order sets, tools, education, um, uh, that accounted for about two-thirds of the barriers and enablers, and having resources was another 10 to 15%. So we're dealing with that at a system level. Many sites in the U.S. work within large systems, and they're aware of this. And we're working to publish data in that area. But at single site, you, you can also keep these signals on your mind. It's not only about the clinical care elements. One of the other things that I think we're starting to find with subsequent uh, data analysis using qualitative methodology is we've now sought to uh, talk to administrators to understand uh, what's going on and how we can uh, support them to effect practice change is the importance of effecting culture change. We're using a technique called learning collaboratives and performance scorecards. So we give all these teams their report cards and we bring teams together to work together, brainstorm. So Alberta is a huge province, is kind of as big as Texas. We meet in the middle of the province with 10 teams twice a year to say, okay, how can we improve your compliance? What are you doing at that site? Oh, this team is really rocking their IV fluid. How do you get regular weights on patients? And we use these learning collaboratives to share experience, plus also to help people continue to refine their quality improvement efforts. Very good. Well, I uh, am impressed with how well you uh, looked at those barriers, and that will be very informative then for other, other groups that are trying to implement this. Thank you, Dr. Gramlich, for your contribution. I understand that this work was was supported by one of the Aspen Roads Research Foundation grants. So congratulations uh, to you and your team you. for, for receiving that. Uh, for our listeners, please do go to the February 2019 issue of JPEN and read this paper entitled Implementation of an Enhanced Recovery After Surgery Program Can Change Nutrition Care Practice, a Multi-Center Experience in Elective Colorectal Surgery. Thanks once again, Dr. Gramlich. Have a great day, Kelly.